Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. July 3. On this date in history, in the year 1890, Idaho becomes the 43rd state. Idaho is admitted to the Union on July 3, 1890. Exploration of the North American continent mostly proceeded inward from the Atlantic and Pacific coasts and northward from Spanish Mexico. Therefore, the rugged territory that would become Idaho long remained untouched by Spanish, French, British, and American trappers and explorers. Even as late as 1805, Idaho Native Americans like the Shoshone had never encountered Europeans. That changed with the arrival of the American explorers, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, in the summer of 1805. Searching for a route over the Rocky Mountains to the Columbia River, Lewis and Clark traveled through Idaho with the aid of the Shoshone and their horses. British fur traders and trappers followed a few years later, as did missionaries and a few hardy settlers. As with many remote western states, large-scale settlement began only after gold was discovered. Thousands of miners rushed into Idaho when word of a major gold strike came in September 1860, occupying indigenous lands. Merchants and farmers followed, eager to make their fortunes mining the miners. By 1880, Idaho boasted a population of 32,610. In the southern section of the territory, many settlers were followers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who had been dispatched from Salt Lake City to found new colonies. Increasingly, Idaho Territory became divided between an LDS-dominated South and an anti-LDS North. In the mid-1880s, Anti-LDS Republicans used widespread public antipathy toward the practice of polygamy to pass legislation denying the predominantly Democratic Latter-day Saints the vote. With the Democratic vote disarmed, Idaho became a Republican-dominated territory. National Republicans, eager to increase their influence in the U.S. Congress, began to push for Idaho statehood in 1888. The following year, the Idaho Territorial Legislature approved a strongly anti-LDS constitution. The U.S. Congress approved the document on this day in 1890, and Idaho became the 43rd state in the Union. July 4. On this date in history, in the year 1997, the Pathfinder lands on Mars. After traveling 120 million miles in seven months, NASA's Mars Pathfinder becomes the first U.S. spacecraft to land on Mars in more than two decades. In an ingenious, cost-saving landing procedure, Pathfinder used parachutes to slow its approach to the Martian surface and then deployed airbags 
to cushion its impact, colliding with the Eris Vallis floodplain at 40 miles an hour. The spacecraft bounced high into the Martian atmosphere 16 times before safely coming to rest. On July 5, the Pathfinder lander was renamed Sagan Memorial Station in honor of the late American astronomer Carl Sagan, and the next day Sojourner, the first remote-controlled interplanetary rover, rolled off the station. Sojourner, which traveled a total of 171 feet during its 30-day mission, sent back a wealth of information about the chemical components of rock and soil in the area. In addition, nearly 10,000 images of the Martian landscape were taken. The Mars Pathfinder mission, which cost just $150 million, was hailed as a triumph for NASA. July 5 on this date in history, in the year 1946, the bikini is introduced. On July 5, 1946, French designer Louis Riard unveils a daring two-piece swimsuit at the Piscine Molitor, a popular swimming pool in Paris. Parisian showgirl Micheline Bernardini modeled the new fashion, which Riard dubbed bikini, inspired by a newsmaking U.S. atomic test that took place off the Bikini Atoll in the Pacific Ocean earlier that week. European women first began wearing two-piece bathing suits that consisted of a halter top and shorts in the 1930s, but only a sliver of the midriff was revealed and the navel was vigilantly covered. In the United States, the modest two-piece made its appearance during World War II, when wartime rationing of fabric saw the removal of the skirt panel and other superfluous material. Meanwhile in Europe, fortified coastlines and allied invasions curtailed beach life during the war, and swimsuit development, like everything else non-military, came to a standstill. In 1946, Western Europeans joyously greeted the first war-free summer in years, and French designers came up with fashions to match the liberated mood of the people. Two French designers, Jacques Heim and Louis Rayard, developed competing prototypes of the bikini. Heim called his the Atom and advertised it as the world's smallest bathing suit. Rayard's swimsuit, which was basically a bra top and two inverted triangles of cloth connected by a string, was in fact significantly smaller. Made out of a scant 30 inches of fabric, Rayard promoted his creation as smaller than the world's smallest bathing suit. Rayard called his creation the Bikini, named after the Bikini Atoll. In planning the debut of his new swimsuit, Rayard had trouble finding a professional model who would deign to wear the scandalously skimpy two-piece, so he turned to Micheline Bernardini, an exotic dancer at the Casino de Paris, who had no qualms about appearing nearly nude in public. As an allusion to the headlines that he knew his swimsuit would generate, he printed newspaper type across the suit that Bernardini modeled on July 5 at the Pesquine Molitor. The bikini was a hit, especially among men, and Bernardini received some 50,000 fan letters. Before long, Bold young women in bikinis were causing a sensation along the Mediterranean coast. Spain and Italy passed measures 
prohibiting bikinis on public beaches, but later capitulated to the changing times when the swimsuit grew into a mainstay of European beaches in the 1950s. Rayard's business soared, and in advertisements, he kept the bikini mystique alive by declaring that a two-piece suit wasn't a genuine bikini unless it could be pulled through a wedding ring. In prudish America, the bikini was successfully resisted until the early 1960s, when a new emphasis on youthful liberation brought the swimsuit and moss to U.S. beaches. It was immortalized by the pop singer Brian Hyland, who sang Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini by the teenage beach blanket movies of Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon, and by the California surfing culture celebrated by the rock groups like the Beach Boys. Since then, the popularity of the bikini has only continued to grow. July 6. On this date in history, in the year 1994, Forrest Gump opens, wins Tom Hanks a second Oscar. On July 6, 1994, the movie Forrest Gump opens in U.S. theaters. A huge box office success, the film starred Tom Hanks in the title role of Forrest, a good-hearted man with a low IQ who winds up at the center of key cultural and historical events of the second half of the 20th century. Forrest Gump was based on a 1986 novel of the same name by Winston Groom, who, like his main character, grew up in Alabama and served in the Army during Vietnam. In the film, which included now-famous lines like, Life is like a box of chocolates, and You never know what you're gonna get, Forrest is a star runner and ping-pong prodigy who inadvertently rubs elbows with the key figures in a number of landmark events, from Elvis, to the Civil Rights Movement, to Watergate, to the rise of Apple computers. He pursues and eventually marries his childhood friend Jenny, played by Robin Wright, who veered from Forrest's conservative path and became a hippie in the 1960s. Some commentators argued that Jenny's eventual demise was a statement about the counterculture movement in America. Forrest Gump received 13 Academy Award nominations and took home six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, and Best Director. The film also won an Oscar for its then-cutting-edge computer-generated imagery, CGI, special effects, which incorporated Forrest Gump into existing news footage with famous world figures including John F. Kennedy, John Lennon, and Richard Nixon. The win was Hanks' second in the Best Actor category. A year earlier, the actor had nabbed an Oscar for his starring role as a lawyer with AIDS in Philadelphia, in 1993. With Forrest Gump, Hanks became only the second actor after Spencer Tracy to win back-to-back -back Oscars. July 7. On this date in history, in the year 1930, the building of Hoover Dam begins. Over the next five years, a total of 21,000 men would work ceaselessly to produce what would be the largest dam of its time as well as one of the largest man-made structures in the world. Although the dam would take only five years to build, its construction was nearly 30 years in the making. Arthur Powell Davis, an engineer from the Bureau of Reclamation, originally had his vision for the Hoover Dam back in 1902, and his engineering report on the topic 
became the guiding document when plans were finally made to begin the dam in 1922. Herbert Hoover, the 31st President of the United States and a committed conservationist, played a crucial role in making Davis's vision a reality. As Secretary of Commerce in 1921, Hoover devoted himself to the erection of a high dam in Boulder Canyon. The dam would provide essential flood control, which would prevent damage to downstream farming communities that suffered each year when snow from the Rocky Mountains melted and joined the Colorado River. Further, the dam would allow the expansion of irrigated farming in the desert and would provide a dependable supply of water for Los Angeles and other Southern California communities. Even with Hoover's exuberant backing and a regional consensus around the need to build the dam, congressional approval and individual state cooperation were slow in coming. For many years, Water rights had been a source of contention among the western states that had claims on the Colorado River. To address this issue, Hoover negotiated the Colorado River Compact, which broke the river basin into two regions, with the water divided between them. Hoover then had to introduce and reintroduce the bill to build the dam several times over the next few years before the House and Senate finally approved the bill in 1928. In 1929, Hoover, now president, signed the Colorado River Compact into law, claiming it was the most extensive action ever taken by a group of states under the provisions of the Constitution permitting compacts between states. Once preparations were made, the Hoover Dam's construction sprinted forward. The contractors finished their work two years ahead of schedule and millions of dollars under budget. Today, the Hoover Dam generates enough energy each year to serve over a million people and stands, in Hoover Dam's artist's Oscar Hansen's words, as a monument to collective genius exerting itself in community efforts around a common need or ideal. July 8. On this date in history, in the year 1776, the Liberty Bell tolls to announce the Declaration of Independence. On July 8, 1776, a 2,000-pound copper and tin bell, now known as the Liberty Bell, rings out from the tower of the Pennsylvania State House, now Independence Hall, in Philadelphia, summoning citizens to the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence. Four days earlier, the historic document had been adopted by delegates to the Continental Congress but the bell did not ring to announce the issuing of the document until the Declaration of Independence returned from the printer on July 8. In 1751, to commemorate a 50-year anniversary of Pennsylvania's original constitution, the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly ordered the bell to be constructed. After being cracked during a test and then recast twice, the bell was hung from the State House steeple in June 1753 rung to call the Pennsylvania Assembly together and to summon people for special announcements and events, it was also rung on important occasions such as King George's III 1761 ascension to the British throne and, in 1765, to call the people together to discuss Parliament's controversial Stamp Act. With the outbreak of the American Revolution in April 1775, 
the bell was rung to announce the battles of Lexington and Concord. Its most famous tolling, however, was on July 8, 1776, when it summoned Philadelphia citizens for the first reading of the Declaration of Independence. As the British advanced towards Philadelphia in the fall of 1777, the bell was removed from the city and hidden in Allentown to save it from being melted down by the British and used to make cannons. After the British defeat in 1781, the bell was returned to Philadelphia, which served as the nation's capital from 1790 to 1800. In addition to marking important events, the bell tolled annually to celebrate George Washington's birthday on February 22nd and the 4th of July. The name Liberty Bell was first coined in an 1839 poem in an abolitionist pamphlet. The question of when the Liberty Bell acquired its famous fracture has been the subject of a good deal of historical debate. In the most commonly accepted account, the bell suffered a major break while tolling for the funeral of the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, in 1835. And in 1846, the crack expanded to its present size while in use to mark Washington's birthday. After that date, it was regarded as unsuitable for ringing, but it was still ceremoniously tapped on occasion to commemorate important events. On June 6, 1944, when Allied forces invaded France, the sound of the bells, dulled ring, was broadcast by radio across the United States. July 9. On this date in history, in the year 2000, Venus Williams wins Wimbledon for the first time. Her victory over defending champion Lindsay Davenport made Williams the first black female Wimbledon champion since Althea Gibson won back-to-back titles in 1957 and 1958. Overcoming a tough childhood in Compton, California, Williams became a champion women's tennis player with seven Grand Slam single titles, 16 Grand Slam doubles titles, and four Olympic gold medals. Williams and her sister Serena are considered two of the greatest tennis players of all time. Williams was born on June 17, 1980, in Linwood, California. Her father, a self-taught tennis coach, trained his daughters on the local courts. When Williams was 10 years old, the family relocated to West Palm Beach, Florida, so Venus and Serena could attend a tennis academy. By the age of 10, Williams's serve topped off at an impressive 100 miles per hour. Thanks to that serve and athletic prowess on the court, Williams was 63-0 on the United States Tennis Association Junior Tour. On October 31, 1994, Williams turned pro at age 14. In 1997, she became the first woman since Pam Shriver in 1978 to reach the final of her first U.S. Open. In 1998, she won her first Grand Slam at the Australian Open. A year later, she won the French Open Women's Doubles Tournament with her sister, when Williams won at Wimbledon in 2000, she said, It's really great because I've been working so hard all my life to be here. It's strange. I'd go to bed at night and I'd dream I'd won a grand slam. But when I woke up, there was a nightmare. Now I don't have to wake up like that anymore. That same year, she went on to win the U.S. Open, two gold medals at the 2000 Summer Olympic Games in Sydney, 
and signed a $40 million scholarship deal with Reebok. In 2011, Williams revealed she was battling Chagrin syndrome, a chronic incurable immune system disorder. Many expected her to take a step back from tennis. Instead, she went on to win gold at the 2012 Summer Olympics and the women's doubles title at Wimbledon. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for July 3rd through July 9. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.